Little ones, you can go ahead and go downstairs if you'd like to. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open up to Matthew. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 26, so feel free to turn there. So if you have a copy of God's Word, hopefully you're going to Matthew 26. Uh, if you are, I, w- I want to give you a phrase. Uh, well, first of all, the title of this message is The Long Night. We've all heard that phrase before probably, right? Maybe some of us have even said that phrase, it's been a long night. Now, this is a Western phrase, and so if, if you aren't familiar with it, basically what it means is that you've had a chain of events happen, and you are ready to go to sleep, uh, whether good or bad, Right? Most of it, I think, I think in, in our vernacular, generally when we say to somebody, hey, it's been a long night, I think most of the time we mean that negatively. And so it's at the end of a weary day where we've been waiting for something or wanting something or arguing with somebody or something hasn't worked out. It's like, man, it's just been a long night and you're ready to go to bed. It's often in the dark moments of our lives or in the lives of others that we actually learn most about ourselves or about others though, isn't it? It's often on those long nights that our character is revealed or the character of others that we know and love are revealed, right? I mean, it's often in those times that we find out things about ourselves or things are exposed that we wish weren't exposed. I wonder if any of you have ever been through a dark time in your life or a long night in your life. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a long night or a long time or a dark time right now. You know, there's another Western saying that says it's always darkest before the dawn. And in the scripture that we're going to look at today, that's what we're going to see with Jesus. If anybody in the history of ever has ever been able to say, man, it's been a long night, it would be Christ. And as you look with me here at Matthew 26, I want to remind you of where we're at in the narrative. And so a lot of times scripture will do this where they'll kind of, they'll take a lot of time and they'll stuff it in a few chapters. And so things like, you know, when David was fleeing Saul and things like that, it'll be just a couple chapters that will cover, you know, months or years. And then you have other parts of scripture where it seems like time is expanded out and you're given the detail of things. That's where we're at with Jesus's life right now. We've had three years compressed into the section that we've already talked about, and this is the tail end of that, and now we're going to zoom in in time and kind of see the nitty-gritty details of all these things. And so if you remember, last week we were talking about Jesus being anointed in chapters or in verses 1 through 16, and, and then in chapter 26, if you look with me, maybe you have headings on there, it's the, the Passover with the disciples, 17 through 25, where they go into this city. He says, you're going to find a certain house for my time is at hand. You're going to find the certain house that we're going to have the Passover at. For me, I always wonder, is this the same guy who had the donkeys, right? So not only did he give him the donkeys, but he also gave him a room to have the Passover. And I don't know, but same kind of story. He goes in, finds a certain man. That's where they're going to be. He has this prediction of his betrayal. All of them say, hey, not me, not me, right? Judas is named as the one. We already knew that from before, from last week when we talked about him selling him out. And the funny thing is Judas's name actually means, or is this connotation of bringing praise, that is not what Judas, Judas does. 
And then the next heading you might have is 26 through 29, institution of the Lord's Supper, of how this is his body and his blood of this new covenant, and how that's the first time that we as Christians see this, this Lord's Supper, and how he tells them, you, you know, we're going to, I'm going to have this again with you eventually. And then Jesus foretells Peter's denial in 26, 30 through 35. And he makes this statement there, you will all fall away. And then, of course, Peter denies his denial, and Jesus only confirms that that's what's going to happen. So that's the context. They just got done having this meal. He just got done telling them about this new covenant. He's been telling them all along that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's telling them that the time is at hand, and all of them are saying, we're not going to leave you, we're not going to forsake you, we're going to be with you, even to the point of death, we're there with you. And then they go to the garden. And so if you would, let's pray before we get into the text today. God, our Father in heaven, I think every single one of us, although not being in the actual garden of Gethsemane, have or will someday experience our own garden of Gethsemane. And so as we look at this long night that your son suffered, I pray that his suffering might bring us hope, that his agony might bring us peace, that his abandonment might bring us into the adoption of what it means to be sons and daughters of the living God. I pray that this text that is about to show us the depth of our relatability to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that is the very Son of Man, Christ Jesus, that this would also encourage us. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I want to show you some aspects of this. I'm going to read the text for you. It's not going to be on the screen here, but I want to read it through with you one time and then dive into it if we can do that. On a personal note, I am absolutely struck by this text. The reason we're picking this text and not Peter's denial or not, you know, Judas betraying him or or whatever. Sometimes, sometimes I struggle with, and maybe you do too, sometimes I struggle with the humanity side of, of Jesus. I'm cool with his God side, you know, like he does all these amazing things. And there's times in my life where I've struggled, and perhaps you've struggled with, but Jesus, do you really know the kind of things that I'm going with? Like, can you really relate to me? And I think this text shows so beautifully his humanity and what it means to be fully human. Because this is what God asks of us too, especially, especially in times of us going into our own gardens of Gethsemane. And so if you would, in your text, it's not going to be up here, read with me if you would, verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so I want to share with you six things that I have seen in this text. And I hope that they speak to you the way that they did to me. The first thing is this. Gethsemane is a place of great heaviness. And in verse 36 and 37, And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, if you're a note taker, if you have a copy, I have in there Luke 22 and also Mark 14. Luke 22, Mark 14 are also parallel sections of where this is happening. And in there, it says that he is distressed. My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. We cannot imagine the heaviness that he feels. I think this speaks to his humanity because I am somebody who often will suffer from depression. It kind of goes in and out. It's especially bad during uh, the dark times of winter. Perhaps some of you suffer with anxiety or depression. And so this is very human of Jesus to have this great heaviness. As we've talked about, this is a long, long night for Christ. And this is simply just the beginning of it. And so as he comes into the garden, he has this sense of great heaviness, this great sorrow. Isaiah 53, 3-4 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted <coughs> sorry, and, and, and acquainted with grief, and so, as one of whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so he had great heaviness because he had just entered into Jerusalem. And if you remember, he had just said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather you in as a hen gathers her chicks, and yet you were unwilling. And so I think we need to be clear here because there are plenty of martyrs who have come and who have gone and who will come who maybe don't experience the same kind of heaviness. This is an entirely different kind of heaviness. And so at one level, we can relate with Christ absolutely when we have our own distress and our own struggles and our own anxieties and our own depression. And on another note, he is completely other than us in the level of heaviness that he has went through. Perhaps you feel rejected by man. Perhaps you are a man or woman of sorrows. Perhaps you can understand what it means to be acquainted with with grief. Perhaps you have grown into or your life is one who has been recognized by people who are hiding their faces from you. Or even people who despise you and esteem you not. In verse 4 it says, Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You see, the heaviness that Christ has is not just his own, not just something we can relate to about having people not like us or being rejected or acquainted with sorrows and griefs, his heaviness was that he bore our griefs and our sorrows as well. The heaviness he feels is because he knows he is about to bear the sin 
of all of those who would be his. John 3.16 says the whole world, right? It's a free gift that whoever would receive that. Isaiah 53.6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It talks about that he was crushed for our transgressions. Jesus in the garden here feels the heaviness and the weight of God's judgment upon sin beginning to bear down on him. And remember, this is someone who has never, ever experienced sin. Ever. Through all eternity past and throughout all eternity future, will never again suffer the weight of sin. In one of the commentaries that I read through, this is how the author writes it. He was, he was in deep sympathy with the holiness of God and the helplessness of man. May our eyes be opened to see and our hearts touched to appreciate the beautiful sadness of the Son of God. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane is a place of great heaviness. But it's also a place of solemn loneliness. And by the way, I just want for you to understand, my, my goal here is for you to understand that this Garden of Gethsemane is both a place of terror, but also a place of joy. And so please wait for that. It's going to get real heavy before it gets better. So it's a place of solemn loneliness. Matthew twenty six forty and 43 both talk about this. It says, He came to the disciples, found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you cannot watch with me for one hour? Peter, you just told me, you literally just said, right, that, that you were going to go with me even to the point of death. And now all I've asked you to do is to sit here with me and pray. And Peter, you're already snoring. You couldn't even stay awake for one hour. And then it says, again, he came back and found them sleeping. It says, for their eyes were heavy, as if that justifies it. Oh, you guys were really tired from the night's labors, right? Psalm sixty-nine twenty says, Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found None. Perhaps this is the way that you feel as you go through your garden of Gethsemane. You know, I have been part of the issue sometimes. And I think if you're honest, so have you. There's been people who have come and gone from this congregation or from this body of believers. There are people who are part of it still who unfortunately feel like they're going through what they're going through alone. And that grieves my heart. And I hope that it grieves yours. Because they are not alone and neither are you. We are called to be a body of believers. We are called to cry with our brother or sister in Christ. When they weep, we should weep and we should mourn. And when they rejoice, we should rejoice. This is the thing that Jesus is experiencing right now. All he wanted was for these folks to be with him, for these men to come with him. He even calls the three, right? So you've got Judas who's left. You've got the rest of the 11 then. He tells eight of them to wait there. He tells three of them to come with him. And all he wants, all he wants is for them to sit with him as he weeps and cries, like Job's friends wisely did as he was in mourning. And perhaps you've experienced that, and I hope that it hasn't been here. 
Perhaps as you go through your own Garden of Gethsemane, you have experienced what it means to be utterly alone in a time where you want somebody just to sit and weep with you. Let us pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not even those who are in Christ, our, our fellow humans who, through this last year, had to suffer through being on video chat as their loved one passes away in the hospital. As that loved one goes through their final garden of Gethsemane in the hospital, they have to go through it alone. But in one stretch of the terminology, don't all of us go through these things alone? I mean, can anyone really understand when we go through a garden of Gethsemane? Can anyone really share that with us? So like I said, Gethsemane is also a place of agonizing prayer. Verses 39 and 44. And going a little farther, Luke says, going a stone's throw, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in Luke twenty two forty four, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Maybe I shouldn't admit this to you, but I'm going to. Sometimes I struggle to pray. Sometimes I struggle to have the desire to want to pray. Or sometimes I want to pray and then also not want to pray at the very same time. And it's often in times like this when I'm battling with depression or I have anxieties or I have fears that I know that what I ought to do is pray and then on the flip side, I also, my flesh says, I have no desire to talk to you whatsoever right now. And so the place of Gethsemane is a place of agonizing prayer. Jesus has to pour himself out before the Father. And I believe it was laborious for him. And I see that in the text. It says that he prayed so earnestly and with such passion and fervor that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down under the ground. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of the flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And then I go back to the previous thing, and the disciples slept through that. Have you ever been in such grief or such turmoil in your life that you wept before God with actual sobs and groanings? Because if you have, then you know something of what this is talking about. And if you haven't, I pray that you might never experience that because I know the pain that goes with that, but that is what agonizing prayer looks like. And through all of this, we see that Jesus does exactly as he teaches us to do. I often think that they have church tradition now. I, I get that. But I often think that we should call this the Lord's Prayer. 
and not the one that he taught the disciples. I think that's the disciples' prayer, and then this is the Lord's prayer. But he does exactly that. He prays alone, he prays humbly, he prays earnestly, he prays persistently, and then lastly, as we see here, he prays submissively. But all of those during this darkness of the time that he has been in is agonizing for him. It's also in the garden, it's a place of complete resignation. Look with me at verses 39 and 42. 39 says, going a little further, he fell on his face, a place of complete submission before someone who's in authority and power over you. This is the only time in Scripture where we see Jesus actually falling on his face before the Father. Oftentimes, the way I picture him praying, and I, I don't know, this is, this is just John, this, this isn't straight from the text, but oftentimes when I think of Jesus praying to the Father, I think of him with open hands and kind of looking up to God. As my children do when they come to me and they ask for things, they, you know, they kind of look up. And so I feel like the son would talk to the father that way. It would be very natural for him to do it that way. And here we see him coming and falling on his face. And also him saying the thing he taught us to say, not as I will, but as you will. And again, for the second time, he says, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. I think back of at um, Jacob, who wrestled all night and then afterwards had the hitch in his step for the rest of his life. That's what it feels like. If you've ever been in the Garden of Gethsemane like I have, you know it feels like you want to wrestle and at the same time submit. It, it's almost sometimes, if you're anything like me, that you almost, your, your, your plea is actually, God, give me the strength to do this on my own strength. Could you do that for me? Could, could you just give me enough self-discipline and self-encouragement that I could get myself through this? But the garden is a place of resignation. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus in the garden represents the fullness of humanity because he comes to a plate of complete resignation to the Father and to the Father's will, whatever that might be. And often the Garden of Gethsemane is a place of heartless betrayal. Matthew twenty six forty five through 46 says, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Basically what he's saying is, Hey guys, listen. It's time to move on. I asked you to pray. I asked you to watch with me. That time is now over. You can go on sleeping some other time because now the hour is at hand. He says, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know, the, the Garden of Gethsemane is a place of betrayal for Jesus in very obvious terms. This is the place where Judas comes and gives him a kiss. 
And when we watch this on TV shows, or when we think about this, we think of this as uh, just like that one kiss on the cheek. But in the text it says that he, in the Greek there, that he kissed him multiple times. But also, it was completely unnecessary because Jesus, does he not also in Scripture say, who have you come to seek? Jesus, and then he says, I am he. And to think about the sign of affection. As I watch my wife ask our little ones before they leave, okay, give mommy a kiss, or come on over here and give mommy a kiss. You know, and as they get older, they all have that same face that we all make, right? But this act of purest affection is then doled out as a heartless betrayal against our Lord. But you know what else makes the Garden of Gethsemane a place of betrayal? Is that he says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. He told us that if you love us, then, if, I'm sorry, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. And so Jesus suffers not only betrayal from a friend and someone he deeply cares about, but also, if you think about it, Jesus suffered for the one that he died for. The gift of salvation was open to Judas. And again, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm going through my garden of Gethsemane or when I have in my past, sometimes I feel like I'm betrayed. Sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm betrayed by those who say that they love me. You say that you love me, but then you're not here for me, or you say that you are with me forever, and then, and then you let me down, or, or whatever that might be. Or sometimes we feel like we're betrayed by the church. You're going through something in your own life. And you feel like the church ought to understand. The people that I've spent that time with ought to know. They ought to come alongside me. And so we feel like they have betrayed us. You guys ready? Because I want to give you some encouragement this morning. I hope I've painted a picture for you that the Garden of Gethsemane is a very dark, terrible place. And that's why I wanted to spend time with you this morning looking at what Jesus did in the Garden. Because I want to also show you that the, the Garden of Gethsemane is also a place of special support. The Garden of Gethsemane is the beginning of a place of hope. The garden is the beginning of the place of peace. Here's what I want you to see now. He says here in, uh, in Luke twenty two forty three, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And this is right after he says, you know, and, or right before it says where his, he prayed so earnestly that his, his sweat are dropping like drops of blood. And he comes in there and says, not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to have to suffer through this. I don't want to have to go through. Not the death, because he knew about that. He didn't fear that. He already knew he would be raised. 
What Jesus didn't want to go through was the suffering of sin for all of humanity. He didn't want to feel what it would feel like to be cast aside from the Father, the one who he had perfect unity in from all eternity past and going back to all eternity future, this point in time where he on the cross screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was the moment that he felt the disconnect of the weight of sin, our sin upon himself, but here in the garden is also a place of special support. Does not his father hear him? Does not his father send a messenger to help him? Is not the garden that Jesus went through a proof text of what he would then deliver us from? And so then, at the end of this, Jesus says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. At the end of this, Jesus is given exactly what he needs to carry him through the rest of his time of his first ministry here on earth. He's able to, in fact, go. Not flee, but go towards that which he knows will be painful. And so as we look at these things, as we look at this garden of Gethsemane, as we look at this long night, I have a quote for you. This is the quote from D.A. Carson. In the first garden, not your will but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. You see, this long night that he went through, this long night that you might be suffering right now, I want to show you in this text It's a place of great heaviness. Well, here's the fact. His heart was broken so that yours might be mended. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. His heart was broken so that yours might be mended. It's a place of loneliness. He was forsaken so that you would be accepted. Hebrews 13, 5, be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The garden is a place of agonizing prayer. He labored so that you might receive rest. Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Or Hebrews 10, 19-22, Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith. This garden of Gethsemane is a place of entire resignation. He humbled himself that we might be exalted. Peter says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now have in the flesh, 
I live by faith to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This place in the garden, this garden of Gethsemane, this long night he suffered through was a place of betrayal. You see, he was sold so that you might be bought. Hebrews 12, 1-4. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who he purchased with his blood, it says, let us lay aside every weight and sin what clings so closely and let us run the race set before us. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then lastly, to tie things together, it's a place of special support. This garden of Gethsemane for Jesus was a place of support and also for us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. See, he faced the cross so that we might see his face. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through this valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, we say things like, it's always darkest before the dawn, or we say things like, man, it has been a really long night. Well, Jesus suffered through a long night so that we could see his glorious day. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're going through a really long night right now, if you're in the Garden of Gethsemane right now, just understand that it is because of that garden that we now get to enter into his glory. Like D.A. Carson said, in the first garden, not your will but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. And now, as Jesus prays this, not my will but yours, bring anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into a kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. So I would encourage you, as you go through your own garden of Gethsemane, as you suffer through your own long night, will you pray as Jesus did? Not as we will but yours be done. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do ask for your will. We know that that's a dangerous prayer. But you know, it's only dangerous, God, when we doubt your love for us. Who among us who has children who are evil know how to give them a good gift? They ask for bread, would we give them a stone? They ask for a meal, would we give them a scorpion? By no means. And yet somehow in our finite humanity, we then doubt the goodness of you as we pray, not our will but yours be done. Do we doubt your will is best? Even when it takes us through a garden of Gethsemane, your will is best. And so God, it is with your love in our hearts, with your boldness coursing through our veins, with the spirit that you have given to us to be a counselor and a very help in a time of trouble, that we pray, not our will, but yours be done. For we know it is best, and for your glory, and for our good,
So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.